We'd like to thank the Thrash It Out sponsors this week, and that is you, the listener. We are 100% funded by you lot out there, and your support lets us make a completely independent and unbiased show. We don't have advertisers, we're not even on a network. So go to patreon.com slash thrash it out to make your pledge and support the show. This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Anthony Johnston. And I'm Brian Latendry, and today we're listening to Mastodon's 2006 album, Blood Mountain. Mm, and this was a listener choice. Uh, this it was. was. The first of our first ever of our Patreon uh, patron poll listener choice thing. <laughs> we should come yes, up with a slappy I think that's what you officially titled it, yeah. wasn't it? On the Patreon Snappy title, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we really should come up with a snappier name. It rolls for it. right off the tongue. Yeah, uh, and this was if you listened to the last episode, we selected this uh, at random. Um, and if you don't believe it was random, you can go to the Facebook page, which is facebook.com/groups/thrashitout, and watch the video that I posted that I took with my iPhone of me actually using the random number selector uh, to select this album. And it was nominated for the poll by longtime listener Lenny Reed. So thank you, Lenny. Yeah, which is exciting because as you and I talked about, you know, up until this point, it has been all our picks. And this was a way for us to get uh, the Patreon supporters involved in this. And it was an album that I know I didn't have any familiarity with at all. And I think you didn't either, right? None whatsoever. I barely even, well, we'll get into that. Yeah, but I I barely even, you know, sort of heard heard any Mastodon. Mm -hmm, Me too. And and didn't know an awful lot about the band either. So yeah. so in a way, that was great because it's exactly the sort of thing that we were hoping for from the poll, that it would uh, bring up something that neither you or I would have picked otherwise. You know, this is not an album that I think even by the time we get around to volume four or something, you know, we probably still wouldn't have picked this album uh, off our own bat. So that's great. That's exactly what we wanted to do, uh, what we wanted to achieve with the poll. Well, and the cool thing, too, is that we, you know, one of the the sort of mission statements of this show is to try and introduce people to music that they either had never heard before, or maybe they glossed over during the years or something like that. And this was the first time where someone was able to, the listeners were able to do that for us. Yes, yes. It's nice to sort of uh, get it back like that, yeah. So let's uh, just do a quick bit of show follow-up um, with our usual stuff. Oh, uh, following up from last episode. Okay, so remember there was the thing about the Film 4 Twitter account. Um, oh yes, and I was like, "What's going on there?" That gave Tur- us a shout out, right? And it turns out that the um, I had no idea about this, but the Film Four Twitter account is the day job of a guy called Michael Leader, who is a, a podcaster, broadcaster, and comics uh, journalist and reviewer who I know through the comics scene. I had no idea that he worked for Film Four, so uh, yeah. But he he sort of outed himself on Twitter or Facebook and said, "Oh, that's me." Um, so that's why, because <laughs> that was a bit of a mystery. <laughs> I know it was kind of cool though. We'll we'll take any support we can get from anywhere, and it's oh, great absolutely. to see people coming out of uh, places that we wouldn't expect that are giving shout outs to the show. Yeah, well, and especially somewhere with I realize it doesn't mean anything to Americans, but trust me, over here, Film Four is a kind of you know is a fairly big entity. So uh, I'll especially take anything from something that's you know well known by the general public. Sure. Uh, we also uh, we only have one new patron since the last episode, and that is Edgar Schmidt. 
So, Edgar, thank you very much for supporting us. Um, yep, welcome to the club. Not sure why the patrons have slowed down. We had a flurry of them. Maybe it was because of the, the Linkin Park connection. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Which we got a lot of feedback about. I mean, talk about feedback for one particular episode. We had mm. a ton of feedback both uh, through the Patreon page and over on Facebook. And I'll just read a couple of select comments from that, uh, from that episode. So Liam said, I just finished listening to this latest episode. I picked up this album not long after it first came out back when I was at uni, played it obsessively for a year or 18 months and then dropped it like a rock and hadn't paid any attention to the band since. I think it was, as Brian mentions, getting overplayed to a certain extent. Plus I wanted to move away from what I felt at the time was teen angst. That said, listening to snippets in the podcast did remind me what an absolute banger it was and why I did play it so much for a while. Need to figure out what happened to the CD or if I need to pick it up again. And I think that was a fairly common experience for people who were I think that's, you know, a fairly common phenomenon with all records that get um, overplayed like that. I mean, I, I certainly remember back in the early 90s getting heartily sick and tired of Enter Sandman, for example, you know, because you just couldn't go anywhere without hearing it. I didn't, not just guitar shops, but, you know, anywhere. Um, and I got thoroughly sick of that song. But oh, tell if, me about it. Yep. But if you go back and listen to it and the black album as a whole, I mean, let's be honest, but the, you know, if you go, sort of go back and listen now, having not listened to it for quite some time, you're like, oh yeah, actually this is really good. That's why it got overplayed everywhere so much because actually it's really good. Yeah. Uh, Dejan Halusen said, great episode. I was one of the people that did not give Lincoln Park the credit they deserved at the time of hybrid theory came out. Not that I ever cared about what is metal or how metal is supposed to sound. And I do always, uh, I had always liked hip hop. I did kind of like the first single One Step Closer when it first came out. But when Crawling became a song that you heard every day, you know, uh, my mind just pushed the mute button on anything related to Linkin Park for the next eight or so years. So that's kind of what we just talked about exactly, in terms of yeah. people just sort of tuning them out. Uh, Daniel Loft said, hey, on the whole Linkin Park not being metal, has anyone heard their cover of Wish by Nine Inch Nails? That's proof enough that they are metal. And I haven't, unfortunately, I haven't been very active on the Facebook page. Uh, the, the last month I've been away a lot for work and then a family vacation and stuff. So I actually haven't got around to listening to that yet, but I do look forward to, you know, being a man who loves a good cover version. I, I do look forward to looking that up. Yeah. Yes. And for those that haven't listened to previous episodes or maybe weren't familiar, your uh, sort of take on cover versions is that they should do something different with them. Well, either that or they should literally just be better than the original because you know sometimes bands cover uh songs recorded you might get a song that's recorded very early in the career of an artist uh and they don't bother re-recording it but then somebody covers it in a much more sort of accomplished fashion um you know and that can be a really good cover version as well or yes just do something completely different with it to make it your own uh and make it sound like you so that somebody coming to it who hadn't heard the original would just think it was one of your songs. That's my kind right. of, if you can hit either of those two, then I'm probably going to enjoy your cover version. Uh, Torrin said, I love the episode. Lincoln Park was always a bit too angsty for me, but I was kind of intrigued that you'd feature on the podcast. So I did my homework and listened to the album a few times before hearing the episode. And then again, after I like it infinitely better. Now you bring up some great points, both about the band and the production still qu can't quite shake the urge to punch Chester in his whiny face after a few songs, <laughs> but at least I feel a bit bad about it after hearing the background on the lyrics. <laughs> so yeah, that was awesome. Which, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's a great comment on that one. 
And another uh, fairly common sentiment, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think, it, it, and those guys became sort of the poster boys for that era. You know what I mean? So, so they often get the flack for what people didn't like about that particular time in music. Well, it, it was kind of the precursor for popular emo metal. Not that emo hadn't been around before Linkin Park hit big, but they really popularized that sort of notion within, you know, sort of the mainstream. Uh, and post Linkin Park, the, the, let's be honest, you know, the charts, both metal and mainstream, were absolutely full of emo rock and emo metal bands. So, and it's not their fault, but you can understand why people would be like, God damn you, why did you have to start this thing? <laughs> I know, right? Uh, there's a lot of comments on this Facebook page. I'm just going to pull a couple more. Uh, Don Cardenas said, I saw the Summer Sanitarium tour mentioned with Metallica and Limp Biscuit, and I'm pretty sure the Deftones were there too. This was the show Limp was booed off the stage. That was fun, even though I like everyone in the band except Durst. I remember Lincoln being really good, and I always liked most of their stuff. It was great going and digging back into this album. I love the production they get for each of their records, though I must say uh, Runaway was the track where I was like, oh, these guys are more the new metal and that was before that heavy as shit riff no that's good that's good he said good one gents uh and then john parkinson said finally got the time to listen to this episode and i was it was really great i really need to listen to the album again a few times having heard your discussions i think you brought up some points that will show me a few new aspects of it and this is an album i have heard so many times already so that's always great to hear because for many of us, some of these albums, especially some of the ones that we've covered so far, are albums that we grew up listening to. Right. And even if you're super familiar with an album, if an episode of this podcast helps you sort of maybe dig something out of it or or get something that you didn't get from it before, then mission accomplished for us. So I, I think overall, the feedback on the Linkin Park episode was one of sort of two camps. One was a lot of people liked the album and were happy that we talked about it. And then there was a lot of people who were surprised that we chose it but ended up finding something about this album that they appreciate more having gone back and listened to it for the most part yeah i do recall seeing a couple of comments from people who were like nope nope just no i think your buddy (laughs) dave was one of those (laughs) right and that's fair enough you know uh i mean there you know there are certain bands like that for me where i'm just like no no nothing you say is gonna you know convince me that i'm gonna like this um you know fair enough uh but yeah i was i was kind of pleasantly surprised actually that we did manage to either change a few minds or make people go back and look at it with fresh eyes. Because as you say, that's definitely one of the aims of the show. So yeah, I thought that was uh, mission accomplished. Yep, absolutely. Uh, Nick Menza died, uh, as we record, uh, a week or maybe two weeks uh, ago. Yeah, Uh, it wasn't even that old, was he? No, he was 53, if I'm not mistaken. And he died three songs into a set with his current band, on stage and it sounds like was never able to be revived so it you know in a different way it brought back shades of Dimebag Daryl for me um obviously Nick Menza was a part of Megadeth during the era that they're most well known for and so um the first time I ever saw them Nick Menza was their drummer I saw him on the Rust in Peace tour uh and of course when they were putting their new album together Dystopia there was a lot of talk about Nick Menza becoming part of the band again and you know fans were super excited about that and so he he was someone who was extremely fondly remembered as part of you know one of the big four and that news was absolutely devastating i mean 53 years old is just a way too young and b a little too close to the age that we are now right that (laughs) um it it really is i mean no no i know i know it's like this constant it, it feels like it's almost a weekly reminder now of 
Oh yeah, of how Any old second, we're getting. You could just yeah. drop dead. Yeah. Like it's just you know, and so that that was one that really that was really like a gut punch. And we've lost some some absolutely huge you know creators this past year. But man, that was yeah. brutal. Twenty sixteen has been rough for musicians all round, really. Um, I know. Yeah. I feel like we keep saying that every year, though, right? Because the last year of 2015 is really rough for And then 2016, it just, I think we're just into that era now where we are losing a lot of the creators that we grew up, not just in music, but in other you know mediums as well. And it's, it's well, always I think, a shock. Yeah, I think 2016 has been especially rough just because of the breadth of people. But, but yeah, you're right. You know, mu- I suppose last year in ter- music terms, last year was really no different. For this, other than the fact that obviously we lost two huge names this year, you know, in David Bowie and Prince, um, but uh, but yeah, overall, the the last couple of years have definitely been a good demonstration of like, oh wow, uh, you know, let's let's go out there and sort of you know live life while you can. And I think it was Chris Poland of you know former Megadeth guitarist who was wrote a nice tribute about him online, basically saying that he was literally one of the nicest guys that you would ever meet. That he you know, was always calling to check in on them and, and his family and, and just would do very thoughtful things that, that uh, would surprise them all the time. And it sounds like he was just generally, genuinely a very nice guy outside of the whole music thing and will be sorely missed. So yeah, even Mustaine had very nice things to say about him and posted some nice things online too. And it's a shame when this is what it takes for right all of that sort of bad blood to go away because we just went through the whole thing where he almost was back in Megadeth and, you know, uh, for a variety of reasons, it didn't work out and fans were angry that he wasn't brought back for this album and stuff like that. And so, you know, it's, uh, you would hope that some of these bands would take lessons from some of this stuff of like, yeah, don't wait and just assume that some year down the road, you're going to be able to mend fences because as you can see, people sometimes, People aren't going to be there when you when you're ready to do that, right? Right, and it may, yeah. When it takes something like this for you to suddenly think, oh, actually, maybe that argument really wasn't so important after all. Sure, then and I'm sure by that it's too late. Right, and I'm sure Mustaine has had plenty of thoughts about that. You know, not just with with Menza, but with former members of the band that that hopefully. You know, you just look back on some of that stuff and say, well, that was just dumb. We should just be friends and, and figure it out because uh, 53 years old, man. Yep. That's crazy. Life is too short. All right. But and on that note, <laughs> let us uh, move on then to the uh, album, the Listener Choice album uh, for this episode. And yeah, and Mastodon, who, as you said, neither of us were really that familiar with. I didn't even know until reading that book that I've mentioned a couple of times before that I read the uh, the oral history of heavy metal louder than yep. hell until I read that literally until I read that a couple of months ago I didn't even realize that Mastodon had been around more than like 4 or 5 years um I first saw them on uh live later live with Jules Holland which I may have mentioned on the show before I'm not sure um but it is a it's been running for years years and years and years it is the only mainstream live music show on a major network remaining here in the UK it is the only one left on all of the major networks it is the only show where you that is dedicated to nothing but live music played by a mixture a really eclectic mixture of bands it's a it's a great show i mean they've literally have had you know, legends 
of pop and rock on there. And then, you know, brand new bands. I saw Florence and the Machine there, like, you know, a week after her first album came out when nobody had the faintest idea who she was, that sort of thing. Um, yep. And uh, and he had, I remember when Metallica did that album with Lou Reed. Lou Reed. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I... yeah. They were, on, they were on there then. <laughs> it was with Lou Reed. It was so bizarre. Um, so it's a real, you know, they, they have a, a real eclectic mix. But what they've never had, to the best of my knowledge, what they've never had, because they're all in the studio as well. That's the other thing. These aren't, they don't go and film them in a gig. All the bands perform in the same studio, uh, like in the round, as it were. Um, And they've never had an actual, proper, full-on heavy metal band there. Um, You know, they they push up against it and they had, you know, I mean, they didn't have Metallica in their heyday. They had Metallica when they were performing with Lou Reed, for example, you know. Um, But they did have, a few years ago, Mastodon. And I remember seeing that episode and thinking, oh, this is a bit heavier than, you know, than anything else they've had before. Because I've always thought, wouldn't it be great if they actually had like a proper long haired, you know, head banging metal band on there playing alongside some, uh, you know, pop ingenue or something. That'd be fantastic. Um, Anyway, and they performed a couple of songs from their album, The Hunter which I now know is actually like their fifth or sixth album. But at the time, I thought they were a new band. I thought they were, you know, sort because of, I'd heard a little bit, I'd heard people mention their name in the mainstream rock press over here. And so I assumed, wrongly I know now, but I assumed that they were just a hard rock band that played heavy guitars and was sort of beloved of the mainstream in the way that the mainstream likes to pretend it likes, that they like heavy music, but actually they don't. Uh, Which don't is so if- funny, right? Because this band is... In, in many ways, anything but mainstream when you actually sit down and start listening to them. Like, they're all over the place. Right. Which makes perfect sense, given what you just said about that TV show, that they could, they're certainly flexible enough and have a spectrum of sounds that they could be on the more rock side on a mainstream rock show. But then they can also go all the way towards the thrash end of the spectrum, too, you know? Right. And I think they chose their... Uh, songs very carefully in that respect. I mean, that that album, The Hunter, um, I read up about it and it apparently was one of their first non-concept albums. You know, one of the first albums where it is just a collection of songs. Sure. Uh, And so that probably helped. Um, And the first, the only song that I really remember them performing was Curl of the Burl, which is uh, one of the first songs on that album. Uh, And he's very much on the hard rock end of their sound, you know, not a thrashy song at all so so i kind of misjudged them in that sense because i just thought oh they're you know a a hipster looking band with big beards playing hard rock and so the mainstream press pretends that they're a heavy metal band because that's what the mainstream press over here does um really i don't know if you get this in america but over here there's a real tendency for i mean the mainstream rock press just basically ignores heavy metal like completely ignores it um and they have this thing where they will often go on about uh, something being like sort of dark and heavy and, oh, it's a sonic assault on your ears. Uh, right. And then you listen to it and it sounds like fucking Gary Newman. Right. And, I mean, and I like Gary Newman, but, you know, come on. Um, and it, because metal is so way off the mainstream radar over here. Um, well, and, and over here, I mean, I don't even, to be honest with you, I don't even know what the mainstream rock press really is over here anymore because we don't have MTV in the same way that we did before. Right. Um, and the way that I sort of curate my own content is I follow the websites that 
cater to the type of music that I like to listen to. Right, so right. my experience of reading up on music and getting reviews of albums and stuff like that is very much driven by I've already pre-curated that stuff so that it's going to give me the type of music that I'm looking for. But yeah, I, I think that um, I think in general the mainstream music press ignores heavy metal. Um, you know, when the next when the next Metallica album comes out, that'll be a big deal. But you have Megadeth and Anthrax who just put out two of the finest albums of their career. And the only place you're going to read about those is on heavy metal websites. The specialist press. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And we do still have a mainstream rock press over here, but they they basically talk about uh, bands like, um, what's the one with the guy with the lazy eye? Radiohead. <laughs> uh, you know, but I mean, that's the level and, you know, nothing necessarily wrong with Radiohead. They're not really my cup of tea, but you know, whatever, but that's the kind of, you know, Radiohead or Damon Albarn's latest project, or, you know, it's that kind of level of alternative indie rock. Sure. Like Rolling Stone will do a, a review of the new Megadeth or Anthrax album, but that's about it. You know, they'll review it when it comes out and that's, that's all you're going to get from them. Right. Whereas over here, you probably wouldn't even get that. You'd have to buy Kerrang or Metal Hammer. To get uh-huh. that, you know, uh, The Guardian is probably not going to review the latest Megadeth album. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Metallica right. is about as far as they're straight, but they would cover Mastodon. And that's what surprised me. When I later saw uh, people I like, people I admire, musicians and, you know, sort of journalists and, and just people in general uh, talking up about how much they loved Mastodon, I was like, Okay, did I miss something there? And it turns out, of course, I did because they've been around much longer than I than I realised. Um, Nick Holmes, the lead singer of Paradise Lost, tweeted when they were on Jules Holland, like tweeted ecstatically, like Mastodon on Jules Holland, fucking rock. And I was like, really? <laughs> you know, famously like ultra heavy death metal fan, and you and you like this? But of course, now I know that that wasn't necessarily representative of their career as a whole. Right. Yeah, well, I can tell you right now, just based on your uh, talking about seeing them on the show, you had more of a working knowledge of Mastodon than I did. I mean, my my entire sort of uh, knowledge of their existence was seeing them on the bill of shows that I maybe hadn't got. Like when the summer tours came around, I would see that they were on this bill with this band or something like that. But I managed to not ever see them in concert with all the shows that I've gone to and everything like that. At least I don't think that I have. I, I looked back through some of my my tickets and stuff like that, but I didn't see any any tours that I've seen Mastodon on. So as I listened to this album, I was kind of blown away because I was really surprised that I had not really had any more of a familiarity with them. But I mean, digging into what uh, what Wikipedia said about them and everything like that, as you mentioned, they've been around for a long while. They were considered to be part of the new wave of American heavy metal which was from the mid-90s into the early 2000s. And these guys have been around for 16 years now. This was their third album that came out in 2006. But um, yeah, they've been around for well over a decade. And they were nominated for a Grammy for a song off of this album, uh, the Colony of Birchman song, which we'll talk about when we get into the tracks. Really? Of all the tracks, that one was nominated. Wow. Uh, Which happens to be, if I'm not mistaken, one of my favorite songs on the album. I'll have to look at my notes. But uh, 2007, nominated for Best Metal Performance for Colony of Birchman. So, yeah, I mean, I had literally no familiarity with this band whatsoever. I've probably seen a video of theirs once or twice, but really went into this whole thing cold. Ah, 
That's it, it is crazy that both of us kind of missed it. I mean, you know, it, it plays into the thing about us being old men and out of touch, I guess. Um, but yeah, it's uh, as I say, other than that one appearance on Jules Holland, I don't think I've ever seen them on British TV. Um, so yeah, they just completely went under my radar and under yours, it seems as well. I mean, we don't get the big touring festivals over here so much, we get the you know, the two day festivals like Glastonbury or Leeds, um, and Reading and what have you, and you know, not many of them have big rock bands. Most of them are geared towards uh, pop and indie rock. Um, so, I mean, Mastodon may well have played something like Reading or Leeds, I don't know. Um, sure. But I don't really follow those festivals. So, And they're not such big news over here, I don't think. Certainly not in my you know circles of conversation. This particular album, when it came out, was very well received. It was voted... Number five for Kerrang! in their end-of-the-year list. It was number six on the Pop Matters Best Albums of 2006. UK's Metal Hammer voted it the best album of 2006 in its year-end critics poll. So it was kind of universally acclaimed when it came out. And again, completely went under the radar for me. Yeah, and I mean, this is the point where I'm probably going to anger quite a lot of people because uh, also, you know, contributing to this idea that I'm completely out of touch, I, I don't see why. Um, I, I tried, I really tried <laughs> to get into this album. I've listened to it so many times. I've sat and, you know, I've had it on the background and sure. I've listened to it in isolation. I've read it along with the lyrics or listened to it rather while reading along with the lyrics. I have really tried and I can appreciate the album and I can admire their musicianship and stuff like that. But there is almost, almost nothing about this album that makes me actually want to listen do you know what i mean that makes me think oh yeah i'll put that album on um i went back and listened because i wondered if maybe it was just a duff album so i went back and listened to their first couple of albums as well and i've listened to some of their later stuff and it just seems that they're not a band for me um which is a a real shame because like i say so many people i know uh and people i admire love this band and so i kind of wish that i could as well um the first album leviathan was much more up my alley. That was definitely more my kind of thing. Um, but even then, you know, not to the extent that I would rush out and buy it and listen to it over and over. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm afraid this is going to be one of those where, I don't know, it just didn't grab me. Well, much like you, I listened to this album a ton uh, since the last time that we recorded this podcast. And shockingly, I liked it. Right, the, the, <laughs> the difference, are, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you and I are often on uh, opposite sides of the coin with some of this stuff. Um, but I can see why I can see why this is a band that is not for everyone. And I thought a lot about why maybe they flew under my radar and why I hadn't spent much time with them before. And and I think that for me, anyways, um, I'm a fan of 80s metal. We've talked about that ad yeah. nauseum. 80s metal is very, I don't want to say formulaic because that's considered to be sort of a negative term, but there is a structure to, uh, to traditional rock and traditional heavy metal that these guys just could give a crap about. These guys are all over the place. Their musical style, I, I couldn't even put one finger they on. are difficult to pin down they're yeah. very yeah. difficult to pin down and i would imagine each album sounds wildly different from one another um i haven't listened to their other stuff i've only listened to this one but even on this album they run the gamut of thrash metal stoner rock um new metal uh just a lot of different 
just a lot of different sounds and uh, pro- obviously prog. Um, right. I think sounds. most people generally call them a sort of prog metal band. Yeah. But they're, but, but they're almost like a prog metal stoner band. Like that, that's a thing is like there, there's no, if I was describing them to someone, it would be very difficult for me to say like, oh, you like this, you'll like Mastodon. Right. It's like, oh, you like these 17 bands? Well, then there might be something <laughs> within Mastodon that you like, but it might just be one song or it might be one part of one song. Um, and so they're, they're definitely a band that, for me, it took me multiple listens for this album to click with me. And, and they are definitely a band that you cannot you cannot give this album one or two listens and find like a handhold in there somewhere. It took me multiple, multiple listens. And even with that, it's a bit of a mixed bag for me, but I did like the album overall. Um, I pulled up in the interviews that, uh, so it seems like the main guy in this band is Troy Sanders, who is the, the bass guitarist and the, uh, seems like primary vocalist here. Well, there are three lead vocalists, uh, in this band. Apparently they all sort of share, you know, duties. And I don't know, if uh if each of them you know where you've got a song where say yeah troy is the lead vocalist where he will do all the lead on one track or whether they switch within tracks but yeah there's him there's uh brent the main guitarist and the drummer uh or is brian right right who is also the primary lyricist apparently uh and they are all lead vocalists as well uh which i think contributes a little towards the you know the somewhat scattershot nature of the music and the band i think because how could it not well and they, and they seem to take pride in the fact that they're not able to be sort of put in a category oh sure um, and, and i absolutely respect that i mean like i said you know i don't want people to think that i'm sort of trashing the band at all because oh, no, i no, not at absolutely all. respect them but yeah i think like because when i saw them on jules holland for example it was uh i remember the guitarist i remember brent being the, the lead singer. I don't recall any of the other members of the band doing lead vocals, backing vocals, sure, but not lead vocals. So, you know, that again was not necessarily representative, it turns out, because they also have, there are several tracks on this album that feature guest vocalists as well. They're clearly not afraid to mix or match vocal right. styles and stuff to suit the track. But I think one of the things that that can be sort of, I don't want to say off-putting about them, is that it, sometimes it's not clear if they're, if they're taking that approach because that's what the music sort of demands or if they're kind of getting a little too cute with it, which I think prog bands sometimes uh, walk that line of, you know what I mean? Like wh- when is, when is it a little bit too much? Right. Heaven and so a prog band be pretentious. <laughs> yeah. It, you know what I mean? But, it, yeah. and so I, as you listen to it, I, it like, sometimes it seems like, Oh, okay, well this song, this song should have ended a minute and a half ago and it would have been, so much better off for it you know what i mean or this particular time chains or this particular direction that they went in was sort of superfluous it did they didn't need that in the song and it actually takes away from the song and we can talk about that when we get to the individual tracks but it seems like this guy troy the bass player is often the one that they that they have do interviews for the band and stuff like that because most of the time when i went back and looked at interviews he was the one speaking and he was on full metal jackie shows which is a pretty uh, popular show out here and she said uh macedon get categorized under so many subgenres of metal 
do these create any preconceptions about direction whenever the band starts working on an album? And Troy said, no, not at all. To a large degree, we don't consider ourselves a metal band. We recognize there is a lot of metal in us, but we also want to believe that we have a lot of rock and roll in us, and we have a lot of progressive rock in us. We have bits and pieces of thrash and punk and psychedelicness sprinkled throughout. Um, That pretty much encompasses everything that I think that I hear on this album from them. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. And you mentioned concept albums is something that they're known for. This is a concept album, and he went on to say in an interview, Blood Mountain is about a man who is searching for the crystal skull, which is on top of the Blood Mountain, according to bassist Troy Sanders. It's about climbing up a mountain and all the different things that can happen to you when you're stranded on a mountain in the woods and you're lost. You're starving, hallucinating, running into strange creatures. You're being hunted. It's all about that whole struggle. So it's not like the most... It's a fairly nebulous concept. Uh, exactly. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's not the most mind-blowing concept to begin with, but it is a theme. Right. I would say. So, of the seven keys, it is not. Um, exactly. <laughs> you know, or the lamb lies down on Broadway, uh, which is an <laughs> right. al- well, which is an album that you know will come up during this discussion because it turns out that the drummer is a fan of Genesis, hmm. uh, and Colony of Birchman is named after the Colony of Slippermen, which is a track off. The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, probably one of the most famous concept albums of all time. So, uh, yeah, that's, you know, there's definitely something going on there. But yeah, I mean, who cares whether the concept is particularly, you know, involved or anything? Um, I kind of get the impression that it's more about mood and atmosphere than a story. 100%. You know, And, and that's fair enough. I can totally respect that for a concept album. Right, like the concept is, dudes on a mountain, strange stuff is happening to him. Right. <laughs> That's the theme for yeah. for this album, you know what I mean? So like on this one song, maybe he's hallucinating because he hasn't eaten for three days or whatever. Right. Like that kind of stuff. Um, it's not, as you said, Keeper of the Seven Keys. Right. <laughs> Which is itself fairly, you know, fairly loose anyway, but I'm oh, sure, sure. We'll, we'll cover that at some point down oh, the line. Oh, we will no, definitely no. cover yeah. that at some point for sure. Um, the only other thing I wanted to say sort of generally in terms of music was the and this kind of goes to what to them saying you know we're not really we don't think of us as a metal band i mean you know we hear a lot of metal bands say that because they want to get taken seriously by the mainstream press right but also the drumming and the the, the drummer is clearly a uh sorry i've forgotten his name again what's his name um oh the drummer's name is let me scroll back up in my notes here he is Bran Daler. Bran Daler, that's it. Uh, Bran is clearly, you know, sort of an important, he's not just a drummer, he's clearly an important part of the band. Main lyricist, kind of get the impression that he drives some of the concepts as well. Uh, the next album, the, the album after this, Crack the Sky, uh, was pretty much his baby by all accounts. It was, it's about his sister who died uh, when, she was, when he was quite young and she was quite young. Um, so, yeah, you know, clearly an important figure in the band. His drumming, I mean, he's clearly a really, really talented and skillful drummer, an amazingly talented drummer. Yeah, he's a beast. But he's basically a jazz drummer. He's ba- I would agree with he's that. He's way more of a jazz drummer than a metal yep. drummer, um, uh, which is a very sort of proggy thing to do. You know, let's play jazz drums on a metal song. Um, but I'm not a big fan of jazz drumming, and that really had... The more I listened to it, the more I realized that the drumming was one of the biggest problems that I had with this album. Um, And given that he is clearly a major creative force within the band, 
that's never going to change, you know? Um, and I think that's why I had to sort of ultimately, I listened to a lot of stuff. And as I say, I kind of ultimately thought, yeah, this band just isn't for me. And a large part of it is his drumming. And like I say, it's a shame because he's clearly a really talented, skillful drummer. It's not that he's, he's not doing this because he doesn't know how to do anything else, quite the opposite. But it reminded me of, and I don't know whether you heard this, but on Unjustly Blind a while ago, I had uh, Casey Liss on and he talked about the Dave Matthews band. And their oh. drummer is similar. Their drummer is like one of the most respected drummers in rock music, incredibly technically talented and stuff. And it was the same thing. I kept listening to the songs going, stop it, stop, just calm down. Just, you know, yep. just settle Which is so funny groove. and it makes perfect sense. First of all, I will cop to the fact that I have seen Dave Matthews in concert probably three or four times. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, that was during my college years. But, uh, but yeah, I went through my Dave Matthews phase, but uh, of course, I like jazz drumming, which goes back to my love of Gar Samuelson in right, Megadeth right. when you listen to their early albums. So the drumming for me was one of the selling points of this band that I that I really enjoyed. Um, but that makes perfect sense of like, yeah, it is very frenetic. It's all over the place. It is um, everything's a fill. Right, uh, right. It, that, that's I actually had that in my notes. I'm like, you know, fills are called fills for a reason. <laughs> right it's just if, full this album is just full right there's no every, fills it's just full of fills if everything is a fill then that's not a fill anymore that's just the drumming <laughs> yes it, it, and you're absolutely right on this album it is just the drumming he is from the second this album opens which opens with a drum intro uh it's non-stop to the end of the album yeah yeah it is it's nuts and like i say i you know, I I have to respect it. He's clearly really talented, and this is clearly what they want to do. But it turns me off. It's it's just not my thing at all. I've never been a big fan of of jazz style drumming. I'm afraid. So it's a shame. All right. So uh, the album overall is twelve tracks, uh, fifty two minutes of yep, music. Which is a- that's that's not counting twenty minutes of silence on right. the end of the bonus track and all that sort of crap. Um, but that's, you know, 12 tracks, 52 minutes, maybe slightly over long. Um, but you know, not excessive. It's not right. No, nothing crazy. Certainly right. anything around an hour is reasonable for an album like this. Right. Well, and for 12 tracks as well, I mean, the average time exactly. for the track is what, about four minutes. Yep. Um, shortest track is three minutes, 19 longest is five minutes, 36. So yeah, right. average is around nothing about too crazy. Four to four and a half minutes, which is fine for you know metal rock songs. Um, yeah, I mean again, it's not a Genesis album. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> um, but then there is yes, the sort of the twenty minute bonus track. Um, I don't know which edition you picked up. I got the. It turns out I didn't realize that it's not the regular version. It's sort of an iTunes limited version or something. Oh, no, um, I think I got the regular version. Oh, okay. So have you got the track 13 on mine is a live recording of Crystal Skull? Nope, I don't right. have that. So you've got Pendulous Skin at the end and then the 15 that minutes That is the of last one, yeah. Silence, right. I've got instead Pendulous Skin as a three and a half minute track or whatever, and then a live recording of Crystal Skull followed by 15 minutes of silence and the the fake fan letter from Josh Homme, um, which I'm sure seemed like a funny idea while they were all baked. Uh, <laughs> um, oh, and this is their first major label album, apparently. Oh, I didn't um, know that. Yeah, I don't know how much effect that had. Like some bands, you know, you can tell 
the first major la- ma- major label album is you know you can immediately tell the difference between previous albums uh, and that one and it changes their sound forever and stuff having listened to pretty much every mastodon album at least once now uh, i don't actually think it made that much difference i think they're clearly a band that knows exactly what they want to do even if that is completely all over the shop but nevertheless you know they know what they want to do and suddenly having lots more money to do it and a bigger studio in which to record it i don't think actually made that much difference to their sound and to how this album came out i suspect this album probably would have come out very similar even if they hadn't been on a major label right yeah i would agree with that it it certainly doesn't feel like it suffers from that Right, it's not exactly radio friendly. Is it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there there are definitely a couple songs on here which I, I didn't even see which uh, which ones were considered the singles. But we just talked about how uh, "Colony of the Birchmen" is the one that was nominated for a Grammy. So you would imagine that that was that was the only single, apparently. And yep. what of all the tracks on the album to pick as a single? I mean, regardless of whether or not you like the track, I just think that's a really weird track to choose as the single the one single off this album you know and it reached number 32 on the u.s mainstream rock chart wow is that is that considered good um does the mainstream rock does that include like brian adams and stuff like that yeah it's it's on on most mainstream rock radio stations so yes it, it includes most of that spectrum, which which goes back to them appearing on the show that you talked about, where they can certainly play more to mm. the rock side of things if they if they want to. Yeah, thirty two on a chart like that then is actually quite respectable. Well, sure, given some of the competition, which as you mentioned could include Brian Adams, Brian Adams and U two and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, right, or or even Radiohead. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Although I don't know whether Radiohead do Radiohead sort of you know threaten the charts in the US. Um, I know when they put just put out their new video for uh, whatever the album is that's coming up or, or whatever it is that they're doing, that like blew up the internet. Right, right. Well, but that's online though. So I don't, yeah, I'm thinking more about the sort of mainstream. Well, but again, what is the mainstream rock press anymore? Well, that's it's kind just of, the thing, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of hard to pin down. All right, so uh, anything more to say about the album in general? No, I mean, I think overall it... it as we talked about, it's hard to categorize. It, it, it's a album that took me multiple listens before it really clicked with me, and I had to, I had to sort of put aside that part of my brain that wants to categorize everything, you know, and, right. and make it fit into a nice <laughs> box. And just uh, it, my my initial thought was that it felt like the band let me into a jam session that they did for an hour, and I happened to be watching them play like that was my first the probably the first five or six times that i listened to this album i'm like oh i it seems like they put a they recorded them in the studio jamming for an hour right because that's how that was the lack of structure that i felt that it had but then as i started to get into it the songs started to differentiate themselves a little bit more i tend to like of their stuff the the more straight ahead uh stuff whether it's metal or whether it's more on the rock end of the spectrum the more sort of proggy that they get the less that i kind of liked them and i much prefer when they go with clean vocals as opposed to uh, some of the stuff that they get into on this album so so like i said it was a bit of a mixed bag for me but overall it's i mean there there is some super super heavy stuff on this album and i listened to it a lot so it was in my car quite a bit over the past month 
Right. Uh, okay. Uh, we we need to start going through then because that's going to be. I, I suspect we're going to even like different bits. <laughs> you know, okay. Let alone different tracks, but different bits within tracks. By the sounds of it, that's fascinating. Um. So okay. So the first track is uh, "The Wolf Is Loose." my two favorite songs on the album uh it it is pretty good it's a really strong opening isn't it it just kind of dives straight in with that double time snare and you know we're off to the races and just the the screaming vocals you know not even not even the cookie monster stuff but just the it just feels there's rage in those vocals you know what i mean like just just kind of it sounds big it's very distorted it it, you kind of get the note i made about the song is you kind of get a little bit of their whole spectrum of sound in this one song. Yeah, to an extent, I guess. Although I don't recall, I don't think this song has any acoustic section. Does uh, it? No, you're right. It doesn't have any acoustic, but it, but it definitely there, you know, there's a lot of time changes. There's, as you mentioned, you know, it, it, we hesitate to use the term fills at this point because it's just the way that he drums, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> but like about two minutes into the song, it sort of slows down a little bit and you almost get like a Slayer esque type of, uh, tone to the riff that they play like there i i as i listened to this felt like there was a lot of little tidbits of slayer in here um which is interesting to me because as as a as someone who has listened to many 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 slayer albums over the years slayer was a band that for many songs there was only a part of the song that i really liked and usually it was whatever the the killer riff was of that particular song. And then a right. lot of the other bits of the song I could sort of do without. And I found myself feeling that way about some of Mastodon stuff where there was a piece of each song that I was like, yes, that is killer. But there were only a handful of songs on the album where I felt like the whole song was that. But this was one of them. I do, I do really like The Wolf is Loose. This is one of the two songs that I starred as my favorites on the album. I would say this is one of the stronger tracks for me, certainly. Um, and yeah, I'm generally I'm, I'm the same in that most of the tracks have at least one thing that I like about them. Uh-huh. But there are only, for me, probably even less than you, there are only really a couple of tracks where the whole track feels like it comes together. And th- this is one of them, but even this, for me, has problems. Like the chorus is just not very interesting. And th- if anything, the chorus, to me musically i mean uh on this track is actually less interesting than the rest of the song and that feels like that shouldn't be the case like a chorus by definition right it's usually the opposite right should be the most interesting part of a song i mean maybe that's deliberate and you know if so i have to respect that kind of deliberate inversion especially on your opening track but it does 
as a result, just feel really strange. And yeah, all of the snare rolls, uh, especially at the end, just, yeah, kind of did turn me off a bit. But I did like, I did like that it's a real, you know, straight into it, balls to the wall intro track. Like, here we go. You know? Yeah, I mean, it comes out swinging for sure. Yeah, yeah. And then the um, song sort of circles back, as you mentioned, with the with the snare rolls and stuff like that. It sort of almost ends the way it began. Right, right. Which is, you know, that's that's fine. That's a good structure. Yep. Um, so, uh, and then pretty much with no fanfare, straight into, again, track two, which is Crystal Skull. thing that i liked about this song is there is a if you think about the way that the song ends the riff that it's sort of like like that whole thing has this almost like triumphant feel to it right which didn't it it kind of stands out in an album where a lot of a lot of the sort of feel of the album is is very sort of um grinding and and uh melancholy and stuff like that like this this has a bit of a triumphant vibe to it which i thought was interesting and it feels very much like a a rock song as opposed to like a thrashy metal song yeah i would say so it's uh scott kelly of neurosis like you know lead guy of neurosis guests guest vocals on this one um and you can kind of tell because uh it it feels like they wrote this track with him at least partly with him in mind uh-huh. um and and i'm a big neurosis fan as as people will know so you know that kind of helped <laughs> uh me get into this track a bit more but the chorus i think is a lot better i mean it's hard to sort of pin down exactly what the chorus is but what i think is the chorus in this track is i think better than the first better than the opener for sure has a lot more impact uh and so does the middle eight i really like the middle eight uh in this track but a lot of it musically i felt actually kind of merged into uh the wolf is loose it's this was one of those things where if i wasn't paying attention and i just had it on in the background i wouldn't notice that one track had ended and the next had begun uh and you know I'm, i'm not convinced that that's necessarily a good thing it may have been deliberate again because of the whole concept album thing but i found that a bit problematic it wasn't until scott kelly started roaring that i was like oh yeah this is the other track uh, but there's you know 30 seconds of music before then that i just hadn't noticed was a new track that it i didn't necessarily take that away from the song for me this song felt much more like a like a late 70s early 80s big open sort of rock song like even the solos seem much more straight ahead in the song like it it just uh 
it has this sort of rolling along quality to it. And as I mentioned, it, it has this sort of triumphant vibe to it. And it did feel like a contrast for me to the first song, because I just think stylistically it, it brought me back to a different period of time. Right, right. Huh. Well, that's it. Okay, that's interesting because uh, track three, which is Sleeping Giant. For me, this track was actually the more, this is my favorite track on the album, and this track was the more sort of open, more, I guess you could say traditional, uh, you know, just song-like track on the album. Uh, For me, this is the best main riff, well, the opening riff, I should say, without a question. Um, It's big, that's for sure. It is. It's big and open. Right, but it's big while being quiet. You know, it's uh, right. It's not overly complicated, right? It's got, but it's got something like you can grab onto. It feels like it's building towards the rest of the song. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And what I find ironic is that it suddenly occurred to me as I was literally listening to this for the last time before we started recording today. I was listening to it again this morning, and I, it suddenly occurred to me that this track is the one on this album that sounds most like Neurosis. Uh, and yet, you know, it's the previous track that Scott Kelly guest vocals on. And I'm like, I don't know. I just find that really weird. Um, but when, you know, when he shouts like "shame on" at the end of each verse, sure, um, that's a really that really sounds like a neurosis bit. That and apparently they are all old friends. You know, they they've known both bands have known one another for a while. Scott Kelly has guested on several of their albums uh Hmm. doing guest vocals so there is you know there's an influence there i'm not trying to say this track sounds like they're copying neurosis but it's the one that sounds closest to that in terms of feel and i think it's probably not a coincidence therefore that it's also my favorite track on the album and it also it's got a a melody it has a melody that you can hang your hands on melody yeah absolutely and and i I found the beginning to be just a little bit too long. Like I love the part at about a minute and change where it, it sort of all comes together with the strings and, and sort of kicks in. And then you get that trippy, um, you know, main line that's very sort of cosmic and, and Mm -hmm. sort of psychedelic. And, and again, so for like, for me, these three songs are very different. First song is more of a straight ahead sort of thrasher. Second song was more of like a seventies, early eighties rocker. And this one is felt much more of like a psychedelic, sort of right, uh yeah. sort of weird approach but i do like this song too this this was uh it's not one of my two favorites but it definitely is one of the better songs on the album and that riff is i love the tone of it and it just has a great bottom and it's it's just big yeah and well and even the structure of the song as well even the time changes and you know this album is full of time changes every I think song the other thing too is full of time changes but even the time changes in the bridge of this song are 
feel like they're serving the song rather than like a lot of the time changes in this uh, album for me felt not unnecessary because it's a song what's necessary you know right. you can't you can't argue that but they just felt very arbitrary and kind of yeah, is that really adding anything whereas I here agree. i felt like it really did it didn't just yep. feel like oh let's do a math core bit it was like okay this actually helps build the atmosphere and feeling of the song no i i totally agree and i and as we talked about before my problems with this album are where they sort of go down a path that i don't think contributes to the song but as you said for this song it feels like everything fits and the drumming is more restrained you know it's more it's more straight ahead (laughs) it's more you know it's not all over the place it doesn't overpower the song at all it serves the song so i i can totally that makes perfect sense to me given what you said about the album why this is one of your standout songs yeah yeah as i say i mean it's having listened to it many times now i'm like this is the song this is the only song on the album that i really when it starts i'm like ah yeah you know can sort of yep get into it uh and that leads into and i'm probably going to mispronounce this track four capillary and crest i'm going to say that that is exactly right uh okay i'll 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 take that (laughs) yep I'm not going to argue with that at all. I certainly don't have a better command of that pronunciation to feel like I should argue it's, with Well, you. it's not even clear in the song. He kind of rushes through it in the song, so you can't even get the pronunciation from that. <laughs> This song to me felt very punk in a lot of ways. Also, it reminded me a lot of like At the Drive-In or Sparta. Um, this song isn't one of the standout songs on the album for me, but I felt like four songs in, we've had four different almost genres that this band has sort of gone through. So, which the first several times I listened to the album made it difficult to find like, wh- what is their groove? Like, where where is this thing going to land? But as I got more and more familiar with the album as a whole, like I grew to appreciate that, that they sort of are coming from four different directions on the first four songs of this album, at least to, to my ears. And this one felt very punk. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, like I said, you know, right at the start, um, I can apps 100% appreciate, uh, you know, that they are clearly sort of careful songwriters and that they are very, very capable and know what they're doing. You're right that, you know, I mean, the first two tracks, as I say, for me, do kind of merge a bit. But even, you know, that side, track three and track four, sound very different from the first track and very different from each other. So, yeah, they're clearly able to turn their hand to lots and lots of different things. I, there were a few elements of this song that I liked. Um, The vocalised bridge and middle eight bit that comes uh, sort of about half, two thirds of the way through uh, is my favourite part of this song. The bit where he's, uh, you don't have to go 
escaping from the long way. It sounds a bit grungy, even maybe a little bit Alice in Chains. Uh, and I really liked that. If like if they kept that up more, maybe even made that the main body of the song, uh-huh. I probably would have liked the whole song a lot more because that was my favourite part. Uh, unfortunately, it comes after a really, really lengthy and extended bit of just jazz. I'm sorry, it's not even rock. It's just jazz. He's just fret-wanking all over the place. The drummer's like <laughs> jazz drumming like crazy. And I'm just like, what is this? Um, oh, just that whole section just completely turned me off. But then they come back with this bit that, as I say, sounds kind of grungy. And I'm like, actually, that's really good. Yeah, that's, the note I, like I made that. is like like later on in the song, it sort of slides into a groove. Yeah. And it yeah. brings you back in. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, as you say, they're just so... I don't want to use the term schizophrenic because that's offensive and, you know, right, but you, it doesn't you mean like, what we used to say, what we used to use it as, but you know what I mean. It, absolutely. And you, and you wonder that you, you start to try to wonder like, what, what was the decision-making process with some of these songs? Like, <laughs> yeah. you, like you do, because I think we all, we all do that, right? Like you, you, the more you listen to a song, the more you start to see through into the different choices that they're making as the song sort of builds upon itself. And there are songs on this album where you're like, I just don't understand like why they went there. Why does that happen? Yeah. Right. Why does that happen? Like, (laughs) but then like in this song, like when they bring it all back and they slide into that groove, you're like, okay, see, that makes sense to me. Okay. Now I'm back in. And so it it is the, it's those songs where they sort of take you out and pull you back in where you never feel like you're on solid footing with the song. But, um, Right. But and yeah, th- this is a take it or leave it a song for me. Like I, I didn't dislike it, but I, it didn't, it wasn't one of my favorites. Right. Right. And again, I can absolutely respect a band saying like, well, you know, we don't care whether you sort of, you know, whether this makes sense to you, this is how we want to do it. And that's absolutely fine. But by the same token, it's my right to say, yeah, I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> sure. Um, so, uh, out of some jazz and into, uh, track five circle of Sisquatch. Which has a very high pitched, almost unsettling opening. Mm, yes, you know, just this almost like almost like panicked, urgent uh, opening that ends up finally setting down. But it but it kind of like puts you back on your heels to open the song. Uh, a Sasquatch, by the way, is apparently a one eyed Sasquatch that can see into the future. Okay. According to uh, Troy. <laughs> you just made me like this song even more. <laughs> oh, I see. That 
frankly is my favorite thing about this song. Uh, I did not enjoy this song at all. Um, well, here is a great example of some of them making choices in a song that I don't understand. Um, there's a lot of different pieces to this song and they're kind of all over the place. I, I wasn't a big fan of the vocals on this song. They do this weird voice effect thing like halfway through and, Oh no, I like that. That's the, that's supposed to be the size squatch giving his prophecy. And that's the one bit I do like. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I didn't know about the size squatch to begin with, but like in the, in the vein of the song, like I just didn't, it kind of slows down partway through and it loses me for a while. Right. I, my favorite part of the song is the grinding end to it. Like I, again, I feel like we just talked about that with the last song. And I feel like that's a theme with a lot of the songs on this album. Many of the songs, how they end is my favorite part of the song. Like whatever the final riff is, whatever the riff is that sort of pulls it all back together is the thing that sticks out the most to me. And this was one of those songs. Right, right. Some of their songs do have really good endings. It's true. But again, a lot of the problem is that, how can I put it? They've already blown their wad. Uh, you know, they're like, because the drumming is just full on all the way through, there's no, you can't get any bigger. There's nowhere to go. And, you know, making the drums bigger is in rock music and especially in metal music, you know, that's a really good and effective and well understood way of, you know, building a song to a climax. And they can't do that because right. he's already been doing it for the last three minutes. Yeah. If you start at a hundred, where do you <laughs> yeah. go from there? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, um, one of the things that this song did make me think about though, because I, like I, there was different like influences or bands that, each song made me think about, and this mm -hmm. one felt a little white zombie to me in places, especially oh. when that, when the voice effects are going on in the background, yeah, like that, yeah. that theatricality of, of the, uh, of the song and the sort of spoken word over the top of that, like that. And just that riff at the time felt very white zombie to me. You know, I hadn't even thought of that, but now that you say it, I can see it. Yeah. 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 That could well be an influence, couldn't it? God, I forget yeah. that we're, we're at the stage where white zombie you know, is like 20 years old now, <laughs> I, which is crazy. <laughs> I know. Which is just crazy. And is now an influence on modern metal music. Uh, it's, uh, yeah. That's amazing. Um, oh, and the other, the other amusing thing about uh, lyric wise about this song is that a Rakshasa, uh, in case you don't know, is a, is a man eating demon from Hinduism. Uh, and I think Buddhism as well. Um, and the only other time I've heard Rakshasa mentioned in a song is in a cud song. Cud are a sort of jangly pop indie band who weren't very who were very popular. They were great, but they weren't very popular from the north of England. Um, and they did a track called Vocally Speaking on one of their earlier albums that re referenced to Rakshasa. That's the only other place I've ever heard that referenced in, you know, a, a rock song. How strange. Well, of course, you've heard it referenced in D&D &D for years and years and years and years oh, now. Sure, but I mean, that, that's immediately where I, like, as soon as you said Rakshasa, I went, what, what, what? <laughs> yeah but in music yeah it's uh, yeah sure such a strange thing to come across i actually there's a bit of an aside i don't know but i kind of get the impression that you know if nothing else uh the drummer is an ex D, &D player oh for or sure even a current D, &D oh player. for definite sure yeah. and maybe more of the rest of the band as well i'm getting i get a very strong fantasy role play vibe from this band which is not a bad thing at all. Hey, you know, we're all geeks here and, you know, God knows I've spent plenty of time, uh, my, plenty of my years rolling dice and what have you. Um, 100%. But I was a little, given that we know they're kind of beloved of the mainstream, 
I found that even more surprising when I thought, actually, there's, I think there's clearly a very strong D&D influence here. I wonder if the people at The Guardian know. <laughs> yeah, right. Because <laughs> I'll bet they don't. <laughs> Um, right, and this track sort of slides into track six, Blade Catcher. is the instrumental yes well it, unless you count the absolute gibberish that is uh, uh right but that is literally gibberish at the start it is absolute it? Yeah. gibberish yeah. like i was not a fan of that the, my note on this one is grateful dead meets jacob's ladder <laughs> <laughs> oh wow <laughs> that was the note that i made uh and then the, the note right under that is a bridge too far for me like, oh really this, yeah this this song didn't do anything for me at my, my notes are a bit neurosis, then goes a bit Slipknot by way of System of a Down. <laughs> uh, yep, I could tell. It's funny because I mentioned Slipknot in my notes in the previous song, but as we go into this one, like, yep, there's definitely some Slipknot in here. Yeah. Uh, I do like that scale riff that kicks in about a minute in that did a little, 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 I like oh, that. That's quite groovy. Oh, definitely. Uh, in my, uh, another note I made on this song is chaos to technical proficiency. Right. Like which, which actually kind of sums up a lot of this album, you know. Oh, which, that overall. could be like the the overall summary of this album, and yeah. and some of it works for me, and some of it doesn't work for me. This particular song didn't necessarily work for me, although that riff that you mentioned, I do like that part. Yeah, uh, and talking, uh, going back again to the Genesis influence, and consider, and just prog rock in general, considering the prog rock influence on uh, the band, and especially on this album. Um, again, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway has famously a couple of weird instrumental bits that most people skip over. And I suspect that this track may well, you know, have the same sort of fate. <laughs> if there was a track that I was going to skip over on this album, it would have been this one. Right, yeah, yeah. Now um, the next one. Right, and this is track seven, The Colony of Birchmen.
can we agree this is the best song in the album? No. What? <laughs> no, no. Come no, on. I, I already told you. I already told you. My favorite track is track three, Sleeping Giant. Okay. Uh, then go on. Tell me why you love it. Uh, it, fe- it the band that it reminded me of is like the sword. Like it feels it's it's this big heavy sound, which again has this sort of early rock almost southern rock influence like in my mind the clean vocals the the sort of dreamy uh vocals and backgrounds i like i this was one of those songs that i felt like was very straight ahead and i just liked the vibe from the first part of the riff i i really like the song top to bottom this is this is the other song i start on the album so the first one and this one are my two favorite songs on the album mm. I mean, there is uh, the album. This track is literally named. You know, I checked. It is actually named after uh, "Colony of Slippermen," which is that track on "Lamb Lies Down" that I mentioned. Um, this is the one that Josh Homme guests on. Uh, I'm assuming. I, I I don't know his voice well enough to know whether he sings the whole song uh-huh. or whether he just does the sort of chorusy bits and the run with death. Uh, parts of it, I, I'm really not sure. Uh, again, Queens of the Stone Age, not a band that I've ever really been able to get into, unfortunately. Right. Um, so, you know, but but it does mean that uh, it has a slightly different vibe vocally because, you know, it's got his voice on it. Um, right. But th- those lines are kind of my, you know, those like 20 seconds are kind of my favourite, my only really favourite bit of this track. Um, there wasn't, it doesn't feel like there's a riff that you can grab hold of. Um, I, yeah, I just it, ironically found it slippery. The Slippermen, haha. Um, I couldn't get a handle on this track at all. There was nothing there that sort of, you know, that just sort of grabbed me and made me want to run along with it. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I'm I, that's why I'm so surprised that it was a single. But I mean, you know, as with the whole album, I am clearly in the minority here because they are a very popular band and this is one of their best-selling albums and this was a single that they were nominated for a grammy for apparently so i know right (laughs) yeah so clearly you know you're on safe ground here and it's me that's skating on thin ice yeah this one really clicked with me i really really did like this song uh and then track eight is hunters of the sky See, this song at the eight spot <clears throat> feels to me like it is a combination of everything that has come before. Like it, it feels like if I if there was a spot on the album where I felt like 
it was starting to settle into a groove, this would be the song. Um, but of course it's proven wrong by the very next song after it. So like, but if I, my first time through, I'd be like, oh, okay, they've sort of combined what they've done to this point into this song. So maybe this is indicative of their sound. Um, this song has a very sort of Jane's Addiction, Perry Farrell feel to the vocals to me. Wow. Do you think? Wow. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I don't know Jane's Addiction all that well, so I can't really comment on that but uh wow yeah i I wouldn't have made that uh comparison at all and it's got a killer sort of grinding end just like that circle of the sisquatch song like it really kind of comes down to that heavy thing at the end which is my favorite part of the song so as i kind of went through this album i kept noting like it's really the ends of these songs where i feel like they're really nailing it down um and this was another one yeah it was often the ends of the middle eight for me, the middle eight and the end, I've got noted that the middle eight and the end of this track are basically, for me, the the best bits of it. Um, the rest of it kind of felt like a track eight song, you know, which we, we, I mean, <laughs> we've talked about that before, about this is where you yes. put, this is where you put the filler on the album. <laughs> is the, Do you think that's kind of a prog thing? Like I, like a theme with these guys Maybe. definitely seems to be like, it, it takes a while to find the song within each track you know what i mean and i don't know if that's a prog thing or if that's just a mastodon thing but but i feel like with a lot of these songs like it takes you a while to get to the center of the tootsie roll pop you know what i mean where i, I think it's it, it it can be a prog thing but it's not necessarily a good prog thing i would agree because um, I, I i look for that spot that i can latch on to from the very beginning of a song and a lot of times it's frustrating to have to feel like you're a minute, two minutes, two and a half minutes in before you get to that part of like, oh, and that that is the Slayer thing that I was talking about earlier. Right, right. Like there's a lot of Slayer songs where it's the it's the middle riff that you're like, holy crap, that's amazing. If that whole song was just that, it would have been one of the greatest songs of all time. But they they just tease you with it and then they go back to just, you know, beating you Noodling. over the head with Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's I mean, there are plenty of, you know, old seventies and eighties prog records that do that sort of thing but you know frankly they're not some of the best ones um you know and some of the best prog records don't do that you know i mean you listen go and listen to i don't know well uh lamb lies down on broadway or dark side of the moon or even you know more sort of slightly newer stuff like uh marillion's early albums and that doesn't happen you know you those are really great prog rock they're not metal sure but they are great prog yep. rock albums and they don't have that problem you know they do grab you pretty much right from the get-go uh and sure some tracks will take more listens than others to appreciate you know you'll get your your favorites will change as you get listen to the album more times and get further into it sure that happens with every album but it is yeah you know those really what we think of as kind of classics of prog rock generally don't suffer from yeah meandering a little too much before you find the bit that is what you want to lock onto in the song. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, and this was an early album for them. So maybe you can put that down to a little bit of, you know, youthful, uh, inexperience. I don't know. Or maybe it was deliberate. Maybe they were, yeah, just bloody minded and said, you know what? Screw it. (laughs) Right. Um, 
but that did really feel like, as I say, a kind of, you know, a, a track eight song. Uh, and then track nine is Hand of Stone. the melody in this song i like the cleaner vocals um i have a note here that says at two minutes and 30 seconds the guitar solo starts out average and then ramps it up um and then it has sort of a thrashy ending to it so which is if they have a pattern not that i would ascribe a pattern to the songs but based on everything that we just talked about like that that fits their pattern that's <laughs> probably the closest thing to a pattern yeah, that they exactly have. yeah yeah um, yeah, this is, I mean, as with track eight, this is kind of where I started to lose interest uh, in the album, to be honest. Uh, the one thing I do like in this is there is a, a harmonized scale riff either side of the chorus that is really nice. Um, but the rest of it, th- this track kind of encapsulates a lot of my problems with the lack of dynamics uh on this album and I, I i don't just mean sonically but i mean in terms of songwriting like when the bridge kicks in on this track it is clearly meant to be a heavy moment uh you know it crashes in and he starts shouting and bellowing at the top of his voice it's clearly meant to be a kind of like boom here we go yeah but again they've already kind of blown their wad with loads of math riffing and snare rolls everywhere and so the bridge is just kind of it's just another section of the song it doesn't feel like you're moving into a new mood or a crescendo it, it just kind of it doesn't happens. feel emphasized over the rest of the song right right yep. um, and the drums are are overpowering in the song as well they really are uh, and it one of the things i started to notice was that a lot of the tracks and i don't know if this is actually technically true but they feel like a lot of the tracks on this album are at roughly the same tempo um now you know maybe somebody could measure it and find that that's actually not true but the the overall feel i get and i think this track suffers from it is that a lot of the tracks feel like they're all at the same tempo uh you know with very little variety and i think that's an issue as well especially when you have a longer album like this yeah and that brings us to track number 10 which is the mortal soil
which I feel is like the most prog song on the whole album. What, you're certainly getting there, yes. And I was going to say contrast with what I was just saying about dynamics with the intro to this one, which is lovely and gives you a gives you a real sort of break from all the thrashing around. <laughs> yeah, I got a little bit of a shades of rush to this one, but also shades of like Deftones. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Um, and the kind of ethereal vocals that they have, you know. Uh, well, and again, my favorite part of this song is the bridge. Uh, well, the second section, the first section of the bridge, I can take or leave. The second section, when we get to the dig, climb, ancient elm bit, I like yep. that. That does have some impact. There's something about the way that that's presented and the, the, the shouting and the, you know, that really feels like it does actually, that feels like a big moment um, compared to many of the, you know, other parts of the song earlier it's just a shame once again that you have to wait till two-thirds of the song to get to it yep um and then into the penultimate track siberian divide track 11 This one reminded me a little bit of Tool. Um, this mm. is another song that at about four and a half minutes, it gets super heavy to the end of the song. Um, which again, if there is a pattern, that is that to yeah. me feels like a pattern of their kind of stuff as they really like to drive it home at the end of the song. Um, the Mars Volta frontman Cedric Bixler Zavala does uh, vocals on this track. Well done. I could never pronounce that. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows if I pronounced it correctly, but, uh, and this was one where I actually felt like the drums were working well with the riff. Like right. I felt like in, in specifically the cymbal work really sort of accented the riff in this song, as opposed to either overpowered it or was going in a completely different direction. Like it, it felt tighter around that. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, this is the last heavy track on the album. Yes. Uh, and in that respect, it's kind of fitting, you know. Uh, and it does, as you say, if they have a formula, not that they really do, but if, you know, this is, it follows the kind of closest thing they have to one. But given that it is the sort of final heavy track, again, just as I was listening to it this morning before we started recording, I, I it suddenly kind of clicked. Uh, and it's funny that you should mention Tool, actually, because I think one of the things that Tool, like Tool, are not my favorite band, but I, I like them. And, Me too, I'd say similar. But one of the things I like about Tool is that they're not actually very heavy, but they, 
impart a really heavy mood. Like sonically, they're not that heavy, but they have a really heavy mood. And part of that mood is pure sort of anger and frustration and aggression. And, you know, they really, especially through Maynard's vocals, they really get that across, even though sonically, you know, they're not what we would consider consider a mega heavy band. By contrast, Mastodon's sound is mega heavy. You know, everything's sure. loud, everything's... Yep. But it feels like it lacks aggression. Uh, you know, it's fast, heavy, he growls, but I don't feel uh, the conviction. I don't feel the conviction behind the songs. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't feel like they are actually angry about anything or trying to make a point. Uh, to me, at the drive-in, Sparta, a lot of those bands, I liked those bands, but that would be a criticism I would levy against those bands. Right. There was there was a lot of energy in the songs, but they didn't they didn't hit that tuning fork in me in the way that you felt the emotion of the songs. You know what I mean? Like they were yeah. proficient, and there was a lot of energy with them, and they could be very loud and bombastic, but. The thing that one of the things that I love about metal is the feelings that it evokes in me. And that's sort of why I never, those bands never became among my top bands because they just didn't have that. And I think, uh, I think that certainly could be something that you could say about at least this album from Mastodon. Yeah. Well, and like I said, I, ha- I haven't listened to all of their catalog over and over again, but I did listen to every other Mastodon studio album uh-huh. uh, just to sort of compare and see if there was an era of Mastodon that maybe, you know, fitted me better. Um, but no, I kind of got that from all of them in that, yes, there is energy, but I don't feel, yeah, kind of conviction of emotions. And I think actually that's probably the one thing, you know, for all our differences in taste <laughs> about metal, maybe that's the one thing that you and I are kind of united on in that we both look to uh metal to give us an emotional reaction without a doubt yeah that's the important core regardless of how heavy or technical or fast or slow or whatever it is we look for an emotional core to the music and i don't feel that from mastodon and maybe that's just i mean maybe that is just me and you you know maybe there are many other people out there to whom this does speak emotionally but Certainly for me, that's what's missing, and that is what I find hard to connect with about this album, I think. Yeah, I think when you combine that with the sort of lack of structure to to my ear that requires you to, to give it multiple listens before you really start to get a feel for how these songs are are different from one another and stuff like that, like it's you have to really work at getting into this album. Yeah. Yeah, which I don't have a problem with. You know, yeah, there me are, nope. yeah, there are albums I like where you have to, you know, give it a, a several listens, and uh, where, where you have to sort of go back to it, and yeah, your again, your favorites will change over time as you tracks that you think, oh, that's quite difficult, and then you know, as you get more familiar with it, it opens itself up to you. Um, you know, there are s- several of my favorite albums are like that, but I have done that with this album, and it still. <laughs> It just hasn't got me. Sure. <laughs> Has not uh, drawn me in, unfortunately. Um, and uh, as I say, that is the last heavy track. And then from that, we go into the final track, final track of the regular album, track 12, which is Pendulous Skin. Yeah. 
this song reminded me a little bit of Black Hole Sun from Soundgarden. Uh, I also felt a little bit of Pride and Glory, Zach Wilde's, uh, one of his early bands, uh, sort of a southern feel to this song. Right. To me. Um, not that that's a bad thing. I, I I thought it was interesting to choose this as the closer um, because it's almost an epilogue as opposed to a strong finisher. You know what I mean? Right. Very true. Yes. Uh, and it obviously lets us down a lot more slowly than the rest of the album would indicate. Right, but but okay. So I mean, you and I, you know, often talk about um, uh, endings and the suitability of like final tracks and stuff. Do you think this is a good track to close on? Uh, I think this would have been a good track to close on if the album had the emotional resonance that you and I just said that it was lacking. Right. So if this album through eleven songs had really just killed us, right? then this song becomes sort of the bringing you back to earth, you know, coming out of the album. Uh, but because it didn't have that emotional resonance, it kind of felt like it was ending on a down note to me. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. I, I quite liked it. it shock horror. I do think this is quite a good ending. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, but I can see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't think it's a fantastic ending, but I think it's a good ending. Um, the opening, Again, the Genesis connection, the opening to this really felt to me a bit like an old Genesis track. Uh, there are some in the era when Steve Hackett was their second guitarist. Steve Hackett's a very, very technically accomplished, classically trained guitarist. Um, and some of the, you know, what we now think of as a classic Genesis acoustic guitar bits were Hackett bits. And uh, this really felt, the opening to this really felt like one of those. And I do wonder if that's a direct influence. And that may have helped me, you know, like it, admittedly. Um, uh, but I, I think given the, as we said, the rather nebulous story concept of the album, this track felt like, yeah, a kind of cosmic ascension style ending, like, you know, standing on a mountaintop, fading into the sunset. It, it got all of that across to me. And yep. given that that is supposed to be what the concept is, you know, I thought that's kind of fitting then, actually. Sure. That, that works. Um I wish more of the album had been a bit like this. And I don't necessarily mean sonically, but I mean just in that this track is so different to the rest of the album, uh, you know, and breathes so much more. Um, and you just kind of said that it sort of evokes in you the visual and the vibe of this whole concept of, album. Of the concept, yeah. Uh, exactly, whereas some of the other songs didn't do as good a job of that. So, Precisely. So this was a place where you felt like, oh, this feels like the the sort of epilogue of a story that I was being told as it yes. sort of rides off into the sunset. Whereas some of the other songs, because you hadn't felt that consistently throughout the album, to me, that's why it felt a little bit disjointed. Yeah. Like there, uh, there is no track on this album that made me think of somebody lost in spooky woods at night, which is one of the things that, he specifically, Troy specifically called out in that quote that you gave, right. uh, that's on the Wikipedia page. That's one of the specific things that he called out is being lost in a dark forest at night. Well, sure. You know, that's really atmospheric and moody. There Absolutely. Is, there are no songs on this album that gave me that feel that actually may evoked that kind of atmosphere and, and feeling in me. Um, which, yeah, I think is a great shame. And yes, you're right. This track, however, does, it really does give that kind of feel. Um, and evoke that sort of scene, if you like, from the concept. 
So in that respect, yeah, I thought it was really successful and really liked it. It also, uh, incidentally, features keyboards from Isaiah Owens of the Mars Volta. Oh. Um, yes. Uh, who were another band that, to be honest, I could never really get into. Um, but I didn't realize until, you know, reading that and sort of clicking around. Apparently he died a couple of years ago of heart attack. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, going back to what we were saying at the start of the show, guess how old he was? Do I, I want to know? That, no, that, that would be cruel, actually. I won't even try and make you guess. He was 39. Good Lord, dude. I, I can't hear that. Uh, he wasn't Don't even ever tell 40. me that someone younger than us has passed away. <laughs> I know, I know. I can't deal he, with that. He wasn't even 40. It's, uh, yeah, heart attack. Just crazy, <sighs> That's man. That's brutal, man. Absolutely crazy. But did a fantastic job on the keyboards. Like, all of the sort of swirling cosmic keyboards on this track are him. Um and I and I think he did a great job. You know, I think that was a great choice to get him in to do that on this track because it really worked. Yeah, I mean, as a song, I think the song works fine. For me, as the closer, I just wouldn't have made it. But then again, as I think about the album, I don't know where else I would have put that. Um, right, it's either got to go here or maybe track one, but then that kind of sets up the album in a bad way, necessarily. Or you maybe between five and six, between uh, Circle of Sisquatch and Blade Catcher, because the, it might have been a nice breather between them. But who, who maybe, right. maybe, so maybe the end of side one, if you will. Right, right. So you get two instrumentals. See, there again, you're into The Lamb Lies Down, where you get this whole hallway right. of 39 doors that everybody skips over. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. this long, weird instrumental that nobody cares about. <laughs> right, and it's tough, too, because obviously this comes out when we don't really have side one and side two anymore you know, in yep. the same way that we used to. So you, they're not even thinking in that way, you know? Yeah. But yeah, and so that, well, I was going to say that's the end of the album, apart from the 15 minutes of silence followed by uh, Josh Homme reading out a fake fan letter, uh, which is just... I, Weird. I think, I, I think it's a bad idea, I think. <laughs> I yeah. Mean, apparently... Uh, according to uh, Homie, he did it. To, they sent him the the music tracks for Colony of Birchman because that's the track that he guest vocals on. Uh, and he recorded this and then put it at the start before the track begins at the start of the tapes that he then sent back to them with uh-huh. his vocals on, uh, just to screw with them, you know, just as a laugh. Um, but they decided that they liked it. And wanted to make it a bonus track. And so, of course, he said, yes, you know, fine. But I, I just don't think that was a good choice. Um, no, and I'm, I'm certainly not one to... Uh, I love bonus tracks. I love the secret tracks. You know, that, that goes back to the roots of metal in terms of the, uh, you know, the secret track at the, at the end, especially when CDs first came out. And so I like the idea, but this, but what it actually was was just kind of silly. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and it's also... Uh, it's not funny. No, it, no, it isn't. That's that's the thing. It's the cardinal sin of uh, it. If it you're going to wait that long for something, it better pay off, <laughs> right? It doesn't have anything to do with with the album. It doesn't have anything to do with the the concept uh, or you know the narrative or the story or anything. And it's also not funny. Like typo negative, famously used to do lots of silly skits at the start and end of their albums, but they were funny. You know, they had nothing to do. They they kind of. <laughs> deliberately went against their very somber pretentious mood in all their music right. you know um but they were funny uh this isn't it just isn't and yeah i was like uh, if i was the producer i think i would have you know taken them aside and gone really, really? yeah maybe this isn't the best idea for you guys <laughs> but hey you know 
But hey, it's their album. They can do what they want. Well, and like a very successful album. Like I said, this album is apparently it's their third biggest selling album. It's won loads of awards. Um, Nominated for a Grammy for that performance. So clearly a very successful album for them. Exactly. Yeah. So who are we? You know, (laughs) And, 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 and at the end of the day, I'm glad that we listened to it because now I have a frame of reference for this band that I never had before. Yes. And, I, and, and I'm glad that I spent, and I know that I spent enough time with them to really, A, enjoy the album overall, because like I said, I did enjoy this album overall, but B, have a good feel for, for who they are now. Like that's right. a, that was a gap in my knowledge that has been somewhat filled now, which is great. Yeah, e- exactly the same here. Yeah, because like I say, my knowledge, such as it was of Mastodon, was literally uh, just that performance on Jules Holland and the fact that I knew lots of people I know think they're great. Um, so yeah, I, I am glad that I listened to it. I'm glad that I've spent enough time to sort of get a handle on what kind of band they are and can at least now speak about them with a, a certain amount of, you know, knowledge and authority. Right. Um, and if you, and if you say that this is not a band that's really for you, you can feel comfortable saying that now. Right. I can explain why if right. pressed. Yeah. It's, yep. it's whereas for example, say Queens of the Stone Age, uh-huh. I actually don't know well enough. Me if somebody either. said, if somebody said, why don't you like Queens of the Stone Age? I can't really articulate why, because I've never taken the time to get into an album of theirs and sort of think, okay, why isn't this for me? Uh, right. I just know that everything I've heard of theirs just leaves me kind of cold. Yep. Um, so yeah, I'm actually, you know, thank you, uh, Lenny for, you know, nominating this. And I'm glad that we did listen to it because they are such a huge popular man and such a big part of the metal scene these days. And I would um, also be interested, like when they come out with new stuff to check it out. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wouldn't. Right. Uh, that's what, okay. And that's something I was going to say. If this was on, I wouldn't turn it off. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I probably will never consciously go, oh, I'd love to listen to a Mastodon album. <laughs> but if it's just playing, I won't turn it off. I'll listen to it. Because it's not like it offended me or anything, you know, unlike, you know, some bands I could mention uh, that I could think of, you know, where I would actively go, do you know what? I don't want to hear that. I'll just, I'll put something else on. Um, but if this, now that I've got this, if this comes up in my rotation, I will listen to it. I won't turn it off. Um but yeah, I don't think I will ever consciously say, oh yeah, I'd love to listen to this album. But I will, because of that, definitely listen to new stuff because you never know. You know, uh, one of their future albums may be the one that makes me go, ah, okay, yeah, this I really dig. Right. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> yeah, definitely glad that we that we did an episode on this album for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, okay. Enough of Mastodon. Time for homework. And uh, we're back to our regular, you know, uh, each other choosing an album schedule. And it is your turn, Brian. So what? And I know you've been thinking about this while we've been recording uh, have, this episode. I actually have so what three are we that do? I've been thinking about. There's a 1984, <laughs> a 1987, and a 2016 that I've been uh, thinking about. But I... I the All right, 2000- wait. While you're still thinking. Okay. Uh, let me just quickly get in so that everybody is still listening. Uh, <laughs> let me just quickly get in. Remember, everyone, if you are enjoying the show, uh, spread the word, rate us on iTunes, uh, leave us a review if you really like it, because that does help. And you can pledge to support us directly at patreon.com slash thrash it out. 
If you want to get in touch, go to thrashedoutpodcast.com for links to email and Twitter. Uh, and you can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. All right. So go on. What is it? So I think I'm going to save my 2016 one for later on, but we haven't, I don't think we've gone back to the 80s for a little while yet. And I'm mm. thinking we're going to start with 1984. Okay. Uh, wasn't that Def Leppard album from the 80s? Oh, it was. But that's just one of many, Anthony. There is so many <laughs> 80s albums that we are going to cover over time. Make no mistake. And the one that we're going to cover today is a multi-platinum album that is one of the most successful albums come out of that era. And that is the 1984 classic from Twisted Sister, Stay Hungry. Oh, wow. I was so... I was so sure that you were going to say Motley Crue or something then. Oh, make no mistake. Motley Crue's Shout at the Devil is one that we will be talking about at some point in the future. However, um, one of the reasons that I love Twisted Sister, because we, I think we talked about in early episodes, like how did we become metal fans and people have been talking about on the Facebook page, like their metal origins. And one of the things that I often forget when I talk about like my love of metal and how it started was that I have a cousin who's a few years older than me. And I used to hang around with him, and he so he was always a few years ahead of me in terms of music. And and there were two bands in particular, and he's not even a big metalhead, but at the time that he was big fans of that got me listening into hard rock and heavy metal. One of them was Def Leppard, and in particular, Pyromania was an album that we listened to a ton back in the day. Um, but Twisted Sister was the other one. He was a huge Twisted Sister fan, and Stay Hungry was one of the earlier albums that I heard. And at the time that this came out, I was 10. Um, and I don't know if I heard it when I was 10 or not, but I definitely remember he and his friends listening to this album nonstop. And then when you put that together with the MTV era of music videos and how Twisted Sister was really one of the pioneers of that kind of stuff with the, with their comedic videos that they did for a lot of their hit singles, like Twisted Sister was a band that was very instrumental in my love of eighties metal and metal in, in particular. That's awesome. Uh, I don't, I can't think of a single Twisted Sister song off the top of my head. Oh, there's two on this album that when you hear them, you'll be like, oh yeah, yep. Oh, okay. They they are Enter Sandman-esque overplayed (laughs) singles, but it's actually the other songs on this album that are much, uh, much less heard, but I think you'll find more surprising, so. Sure. Well, much like Enter Sandman, yeah. Yep. Um, but yeah, no, that, that's great because yeah, they are a band. This is another band that I know very little about, uh, other than your love for them. Um, so yeah, I look forward to that. Brilliant. Yep. So stay hungry. And I believe right now, I know at least on Netflix here in the U S I believe there is a twisted sister documentary, which is called we are twisted effing sister. I believe that you can watch. I think it's still on Netflix. Uh, so people might want to check that out. I haven't watched it yet, but I've heard wonderful things about it. And, uh, and yeah, they were definitely a big part of the scene back in the day. So I'm looking forward to jumping into that album. Fantastic. All right. See you then. <laughs> <laughs> 